There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, here we are. Every week, Greg, I tend to say, here we are, episode X. Here we are, episode Y. I don't think I want to do that this week. I'm just going to say, welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. All right. And if people want to know what episode is, they can just figure it out. Well, it's episode 104. Oh, okay. But <laughs> listen, Greg, I know you're getting a lot of calls these days, as am I, as is Steve, as is Blair, as is Paige, and everybody on our team. And the calls tend to be focused around things around, I would call them market timing. I mean, anyone that calls in and asks things like, I don't know, are there strategies we should be looking at? Should we be putting more money in cash? Are you worried? Those are all questions that come from market timing, don't yep. they? Didn't we do a podcast a while back that said essentially every investment question is a market timing question? We did. And well, we don't want to give away this episode too early, but it is. Every question is a question on timing. Well, if somebody... I don't know, does anything like, should I buy this? Should I buy that? Should I sell this? Should I sell that? Those are all market timing related questions. That's, That's right. the root cause. We did talk last week about how some people had left money in cash because they were worried about the markets for the last 10 or more years, which is market timing again, right? Sure it is. Waiting for things to get better than deploying the cash, which sounds a lot like, I don't know, maybe selling low and buying high. So this leads to our topic today. The topic today is based on the 60-40 portfolio. As every year, there's articles that talk about how the 60-40 portfolio is dead. And Greg, just for the listener's sake, what do I mean by 60-40 portfolio? So the 60-40 portfolio is what's seen as kind of a typical balanced portfolio where 60% of the portfolio are in stocks and 40% of the portfolio are in bonds. That's a 60-40, and you'll find lots of retirement accounts and things like that, that could be kind of a typical long-term growthy balance portfolio. Yeah. So it's just describing the asset allocation of that portfolio, 60% yep. in stocks, 40% in bonds. But it's such a popular asset allocation over the years that it gets a lot of press. Like when things are not going so well, there's an article all the time about the death of the 60-40 portfolio. Right on. I mean, to the point where it's almost like we were joking internally the other day, like, it's the annual death of the 60-40 portfolio. It's just not true. And I don't want to give away everything because I know you're going to get into it. But Greg, take us through this discussion on the death, the death of the 60-40 portfolio. Right on. Okay. <laughs> so as you said, first of all, we talked last week about a couple of different things. One is this concept, well, maybe I should go to cash because things look very volatile. And that's, again, a market timing decision. In many cases, a bad one only because the concept is right. Oh, gee, if I knew that I could get out of everything, all my stocks now, go to cash, and then if I knew I could buy back in at exactly the right time at the bottom of the market, conceptually, that would make a lot of sense. It's just impossible to do. Well, of course, because if you knew, that's what you would do. Yes, exactly. Right? 
So the other thing we talked about last week was this whole concept of people saying, oh, it's a stock picker's market because things are volatile. So when markets go up, rising tide lifts all boats, just buy the index and you'll be fine. But when the market's going down, then you really got to start picking stocks. And of course, <laughs> yet again, that's a market timing. It's a stock selection issue. And again, very difficult to do and not true. So today we're going to go on another rant. As you mentioned, it's something we've talked about in the podcast before, and this one really sticks in my craw. Wait, <laughs> okay, sticks in your craw. Last week it was frost your buns. The week before that was dollars to donuts. What does stick in your craw mean? It kind of makes me a little angry because like, I believe, I believe it not to be true. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, it burns my britches, I'll tell you that. Oh, save that one for next I'll tell week. you that one, Sonny. Okay. Anyway, so we talked a little bit about the 60 portfolio. So it's kind of a traditional growth-oriented balance portfolio. You see them a lot, particularly, well, in the States, they have these 401k plans, which are sort of like defined contribution pension plans, those kinds of things. So it's a retirement account. And many of those are just set up 60-40 forever. It's a typical portfolio, but it's not for everybody. I just want to emphasize that it's balanced, but the actual amount of equity or stocks relative to bonds in a personal investment portfolio is really dependent on a variety of factors, typically that we identify in a financial plan. So what is the right asset allocation? Well, we're not saying it's 60-40. I'm just going to pick on the 60-40 because it's an easy one. But people might have a 70-30, a 50-50 portfolio, whatever is most appropriate to them. But all of the key things we talk about are the same in any scenario. Well, and sorry to take it to another level here, but that decision, that asset allocation decision, the work that's been done there shows that something like 92% of the variance of your return comes from that decision alone. Exactly. Not whether you should buy Tesla or not promoting Tesla or sell IBM or whatever. It's just like, how is it fit together? That's right. And it's that financial planning process that looks at things like time horizon, return requirements, both capacity and tolerance for risk and volatility. And so those kinds of things will determine what a person's actual asset allocation is. But we're just going to pick on 60-40 because it is such a popular one. So here's some of the recent headlines. The 60-40 portfolio is dead. Long live 33-33-33. That's from Kiplinger.com. So what's 33-33-33? Well, we'll get into that. Okay. The 60-40 portfolio is dead. Here's how advisors are replacing it. Thanks for the memories. That was Barron's. Ouch. Traditional 60-40 portfolio has actually reached its expiration date, CNBC. <laughs> wait, wait. Is it like expired milk? Exactly. No good anymore. <laughs> it was best before yesterday. The 80-20 portfolio strategy could be the next 60-40. That was also CNBC. Okay. 60-40 portfolio is largely a relic of the past. That's crystalfunds.com. And why the 60-40 portfolio is dead for retirement planning from usnews.com. Well, now wait, I read one today that you're not aware of. It was on Thomson One Reuters, and it says, stock and bond divergence offers hope for the battered 60-40 portfolio. Oh, thank God. Just came out today. Well, so we don't need to finish this conversation. <laughs> so maybe it's not dead. It's over. Yeah. It's over. It's, okay. it's been resurrected. Okay, so those headlines all came out within the last six months, but it's interesting to note that these headlines also surfaced back in 2009 in March, which actually happened to be the exact bottom of the market after the global financial crisis, and the article was entitled The Death of 6040 and made the same arguments for change. So that was 12 years ago or more, 13 years, but 
why are these headlines out there? Why are they being published? And basically, they're meant to accomplish a few things. So people are putting these up for a few reasons, not just to hear themselves talk. First, what they do is they instill uncertainty about what you're doing with your investments and make you believe that what you're doing is somehow outdated and ineffective. So if you're told, oh, oh, you're in a 60-40 portfolio, huh, that's dead. You didn't know that? It makes you question your investment strategy, which, of course, after all the time spent putting together a financial plan and an investment plan, everything else, the last thing you want to do is start questioning it. Second, it's a call to action. So if you believe the headline and don't do something about it, then don't say you weren't warned when things go wrong. So they want you to put you on notice, essentially. Okay, you're making a mistake. I'm telling you. And if you don't do something about it, you'll be sorry. And I told you so. Lastly, it's an opportunity to present alternatives, which may or may not be appropriate for individual investors from a risk standpoint, but it may actually be beneficial to the people writing the articles, depending on whether they're strictly analysts, whether they're fund managers or portfolio managers, that kind of thing. So let's look at the first of these reasons. And that first one being suggesting that the strategy may have previously worked, but won't anymore. For purposes of this discussion, I'm going to use some data from Dimensional Fund Advisors, and they have something that's called their Core Wealth Index Model. I'm looking at the model that holds 60% stocks and 40% bonds, just as we've been discussing, the 60-40 portfolio. The 60% in stocks is diversified among Canadian, U.S., and international stocks, and there's also a 5% exposure to global real estate. Bonds are diversified globally and by type of issuer, both government and corporate bonds, and so Basically, it's just an index of 60% stocks, 40% bonds. So as I mentioned, the first 60-40 obituary came out in March of 2009, which is understandable because in 2008, the 60-40 model portfolio lost about 16.7%. Yeah, but wait, wait, wait. So what? The market was down 50%. Exactly. But again, never mind the facts. The fact that a 60-40 portfolio somehow didn't magically come out positive, led people to believe, okay, well, the 60-40 is dead. It's not working anymore. It's down 16.7%. So down 16.7% in 2008. And as you just mentioned, the problem was the 60% that were in stocks that particular year, not the 40% that were in bonds. The following year, 2008-2009, the strategy earned 19%. That's pretty darn good. Probably made up almost all of what was lost in the previous year. And then if you look at the period from 2009 to 2021, that whole period, the strategy was only negative twice. Once in 2011, it was down 1.5%. And in 2018, it was down 2.9%. So if you look at the annualized total return for 10 years, ending 2020, it was 7.59%. And for 20 years, which included two 50% down stock market bear markets, we still earn 6.69% in the 60-40 portfolio. So basically for 20 years, let's just call it 7%. You're in 7% a year for 20 years if you just stayed invested in the 60-40 portfolio. Right on. Now, that's interesting because that includes the lost decade. So 2000 to 2009, the the lost decade, because the S&P 500 had a negative return for the entire decade. So the article I mentioned earlier that talked about the hope, it offers hope for battered 60-40 portfolios. It does mention this, that from 2000 to 2009, and I'm quoting, investors in the 60-40 portfolio would have lost money on an inflation-adjusted basis, averaging a return of negative 0.3%. 
Well, so what? What you just said, like the market went down 50% twice in that time period. Exactly. What was your alternative to be all in stocks? Exactly. And listen, as we know, expected returns from stocks, not actual returns, but expected returns are always going to be better than expected returns from bonds. So if you had been invested in 100% stocks during that 20-year period in 2020, your return would have been 1% better per year than the 60-40. But you would have had to put up with drawdowns, major drawdowns of 50% twice from top to bottom. And when you see half your portfolio disappear, you might not still be in the strategy following that. Yeah. And when you say drawdown, you're talking about a correction, a crash, a sell-off. That's right. Drawdown is just a nicer way of saying it. And it's just (laughs) a measure of how far did we go down from top to bottom. So listen, last year was a great year for the 60-40. The data I gave you was up to 2020. In 2021, the 60-40 portfolio earned about 13%. I call that a return. It's pretty good. I don't know about you. Now, listen, we're off to a bad start this year, down 7.2% year to date. However, when you consider that both stocks and bonds are down this year, it's not hard to see why the strategy is down. Still, doesn't mean it's not going to work in the future, and kind of hard to say with just four months of data in, essentially four months of 2022. So anything can happen. So let's be clear on why some people say the 60-40 is dead. It's because of the 40% in bonds. And we've talked about this in a number of different podcasts recently. And some people will say that bonds can't possibly provide any kind of reasonable return because interest rates are going up, inflation's going up, yada, yada, yada. And as we've discussed before, these projections are not a sure thing and they don't apply equally to all bonds. So let's assume that for a minute that bonds will provide low returns for some period of time. Let's get back to the items two and three as to why these headlines are coming around. Number two was the call to action, and number three was the identification of alternatives. So fund managers and investment companies that call for a change to the 60-40, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, they may stand to benefit from their recommendations. So let's look at some of the recommended alternatives for the bond portion of a 60-40, because most of these headlines aren't suggesting you do too much to your stocks. They really are talking about replacing the bonds. Let me understand this. So the headlines written by companies about replacing the 60-40 portfolio are the same companies that are then offering, I don't know, investment solutions as alternatives to the 60-40 portfolio. Okay. And part of it is based on this idea that, well, you have to take action. You got to do something. Oh, things aren't going well. We got to do something to change. So here's some of the alternatives for the bond portion of the 60-40 portfolio. Goldman Sachs suggests these alternatives to fixed income, global real estate, global infrastructure, master limited partnerships, emerging market equities, liquid alternatives, and private equity. We'll talk about some of these things Jeez. as we go through. Wait, there's a lot more volatility in all of those Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's BlackRock suggesting a long short strategy. Oh. Now, for people that aren't familiar with hedge funds, what a long short strategy is, when you talk about long positions, that's when you own a stock. So if you go out and buy a stock or an index fund, you're long that position. Short is when you actually sell a stock that you don't own. And short just means that your view is that those stocks are going to go down in value. So if I sell it today, I'm going to sell at a higher price than it will be in the future. And then when I go buy it back, I'll earn the difference between what I sold it for and what I bought it for, sell high, buy low. That's the goal. Okay, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Kiplinger, the 33-33-33, so they've reduced stocks, they've reduced bonds, and the last 33% includes venture capital, real estate, private equity, and private debt. 
Investopedia has suggested that hedge funds and commodities and private equity might be a good alternative to fixed income. Angelis Investments says hold cash to meet current spending needs and embrace a more volatile portfolio of equities. So you take all of your money, you set aside what you think you'll need over the next year, and then you put everything else into stocks. And Horizon Investments, 80-20 is the new 60-40. So increase stocks, reduce fixed income. That's like totally changing your risk parameters. Exactly. It doesn't make sense. Exactly. And that's one thing that all of those recommended alternatives have in common. They all increase risk. Oh, and when I was writing out my notes, I put increase in capital letters. Oh. They all increase yes. risk relative <laughs> to the risk that exists within the bond portion of their portfolio to start with. And they're all based on predictions that the recommended alternatives will perform better than bonds forever since the 60-40 is now dead. So where does that leave us? So they're talking about the age-old problem of how do we increase returns without increasing risk? And I don't know about you, but I don't know if that can be done. It can't. It's that thing where people say, oh, I've got this great investment. It's low risk and high return. Those things don't go together. That's right. Low risk is never going to be high return. Exactly. And so what happens then is in all of these cases, the writers of the articles are suggesting people take on more risk than they currently want. And we've been through this before. When we went through the period of ultra low interest rates a couple of years ago, everyone was like scratching and digging for yield. How do I get a better yield than I'm currently getting on my government bonds, let's say? And that leads people into high yield bonds. And not that there's anything wrong with them, but if you think they're the same risk as a government bond, you're probably mistaken. Well, high-yield bonds have the same risk parameters as stocks, essentially. Sure. So the argument in that case, we will just buy the stock. Exactly. And so you can always take more risk in order to try to get a better return, and higher expected return comes with higher risk typically. But as we've said, when you develop a financial plan and set investment strategies, you're setting the risk exposure based on the client's goals and their needs and their tolerance and capacity to take risk. And so how can you blindly suggest that, oh, well, ignore the risk, let's just take on more because that's the only way to get a decent return in the future, if I'm right. So if we found that an investor had an 80-20 portfolio was suitable for them, then they'd be in the portfolio already. And if somebody's in a 60-40 portfolio, it's because that's what's defined by their risk parameters. So let's talk a little bit about some of these alternatives, because a lot of people might not be overly familiar with them. Wait, before you get into that, I want to give us a plug here, because yesterday we ran into somebody in our industry who is an advisor. I won't say who it is or where they work or whatever. And when we're chatting with them, let's just say they're pretty new to our part of the industry. We're chatting with them. Remember they mentioned something about how they're really happy to have joined a firm because it would give them the opportunity to do something different. I can't remember how they put it, like to protect their clients' portfolios yes. yep. or risk management risk strategies. Management. Yep. And it became very clear in that conversation that this person was very new to the industry because as we were chatting afterwards, it's like, that's a bunch of BS. I mean, <laughs> there's only so many things you can do. Here's a strategy. Find your appropriate asset allocation, invest your money, and rebalance it regularly. For sure. There's a strategy. Exactly. And it's a risk management strategy as well. Yeah, it has nothing to do with liquid alternatives or liquid also. You're just going to talk right. about it now. So let's just talk a little bit. So because a lot of people might not be familiar with private equity, for example. 
So private equity just refers to equity ownership. You take ownership in a company or an organization that is not publicly traded. So the shares are not listed on a stock exchange. And therefore, supposedly, you have more opportunity to gain a better return. Now, will you? You might. And why might you? Well, when a company is not listed, when it's private, it doesn't need to publish all of its financial information. And so individual investors who choose to invest in private equity, the share prices may not have been essentially arbitraged or traded to a level that makes sense given everything that's publicly known about the company. So private equity, the information is kept private, a smaller number typically of investors, and maybe it would provide better returns, maybe not. But is it riskier? Probably. Why is it riskier? Because the information is not publicly available. It's not regulated by a stock exchange. Maybe there'll be higher minimum investments. There might be higher fees. There might be lockup provisions, meaning you can get in, but it's not that easy to get out whenever you want. And so you've got liquidity problems there. What about private equity? Sure, it might generate better returns. But for the average investor, there may be real issues in terms of liquidity and other factors like that. And there's no guarantee of a higher return. There's just a whole yeah. an expectation of a higher return. And you often have to sign a disclosure agreement called an offering memorandum. No. Yep. Yeah. Where you have to disclose that you are an accredited investor. That's right. Meaning that you're stating that you have enough money to be okay if your investment goes to zero. For sure. Basically. There's also investment firms that will assist people in investing in private equity. And then, of course, all you're doing is you're paying fees along the way, which ultimately, even if you do end up invested in private equity, your returns will be reduced by some significant fees. Okay, so what about a long-short fund, which is a hedge fund, okay? And so the concept of a long-short fund is, well, the managers are going to pick companies for the fund that they think will outperform. That'll be on the long side. Those will be the company stocks that they own. And then they're going to, on the short side, they're going to sell shares of companies that they believe will do worse in the future. And so those two, you get the benefit of the good stocks you picked are going to do really well and the bad stocks you picked, you're going to make more money there too. And that's great. Now, the other type of a long short fund is where you buy companies that you think will do better than the index and then you go short the index as a whole. And that's kind of the stock picker's market approach saying, well, okay, the whole index isn't going to do all that well. But if you pick the really good stocks, then that should do well. So first of all, if we agree or try to agree that there's not a lot of evidence that people can effectively pick stocks that are going to outperform consistently, if they're also shorting stocks that they think will underperform, then you've got to be right twice, not just on the stock that's going to do well, but on the ones that are going to do poorly. Because if you lose on one side, it'll bring down the whole portfolio. So hedge funds and long-short funds, they've been around for a long time. Sometimes they work well, and sometimes they do actually manage volatility a little bit because you can smooth out some of the equity volatility. But the other thing about hedge funds that we have to be careful of is they typically charge 2% annual fees and 20% of the profits. And so while you may get a couple of good years out of your hedge funds, anything significant, you're going to give up 20% of the upside. And keep in mind, hedge funds their benchmark is cash. So they're not benchmarking, oh, well, okay, we have to do better than the S&P 500 in order to generate a positive return. We just need to do better than 91-day T-bills. Okay, so hedge funds, hard. hedge funds are tough. Now, the newest thing that people will start hearing about are these things called liquid alternatives, liquid alts. 
And basically what those are are hedge funds that have been packaged up as mutual funds so that everyday investors like you and I can go and buy a hedge fund with daily liquidity. And so even though they might have better liquidity than a typical hedge fund and maybe their fees are slightly lower, but many of them still charge performance fees anywhere from 10 to 20%. And so the jury is out on these types of funds. Most of them haven't been around long enough to be able to draw any conclusions on their results. And in fact, I was looking on Morningstar, these liquid alternative funds that have a five-year track record. So most of them have not been around for five years. But if you look at only the ones that have lasted five years so far, only one has beaten the S&P 500. And that's because their particular strategy was to use 85% leverage, meaning they've leveraged up much higher risk to get exposure to the stock market. And so you outperformed. If you're starting to question whether your portfolio of stocks, bonds, and cash is right, just look to long-term performance and try not to focus on the short-term gyrations. Because when you look at returns under 10 years, they're especially noisy and pretty much impossible to draw conclusions about the future based on those really short-term results. Do these short-term gyrations stick in your craw? Is that- they do. They, <laughs> they get my goat, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Greg, I think the problem is a short memory. Everything you discussed here makes sense, but it's almost like, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? I mean, even in financial planning, we run these scenarios and Monte Carlo simulations, and these are just probability outcomes. They show that, look, the outcomes show there's always a 2.5% chance of having returns more than two standard deviations away from the mean. So in English, there's a 2.5% chance of having a really bad return. And so that's just there. And it's always there. Even during good years, there's still a 2.5% chance of having a really bad end of the year. And it doesn't mean that the next year is not going to be good again or the next decade or whatever. Because just like what you talked about, 2000 to 2009, yeah, 60-40 portfolio, negative 0.3%. Well, 2000 to 2020, what did you say? 7%. Six, yeah, so yeah, almost 7%. It kind of reminds me of like where we live in Calgary. We have weather issues. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. I like to golf. Quite often, I'll look at the weather app on my phone and it'll say 40% chance of showers. Does that stop me from going? No. I hope not. Well, of course not, because it still means there's 60% chance that it's not going to shower. Exactly. And if I go and it starts to rain, well, what was the chance of rain then? 40%. 100%. Oh, <laughs> like if it actually rains. Oh, if, you're, oh, if it's raining, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's 100%. <laughs> but it's not going to stop me because I know during the course of a four to five hour period in Calgary, you can have three or four different seasons of weather. And the thing is this, and it reminds me years ago, years and years ago, I took my son to a summer camp and it was up north at that there's a petting zoo kind of camp thing up in the northwest part of Calgary. That particular summer, it was quite warm. And so he went up and it was like 35 degrees up there. And it was so hot and it was sweating. And he came back after that camp was finished. He says, I don't like that place anymore. It's too hot. <laughs> you know, and it reminds me of people that, for example, they have a bad investment one year, whether it's a mutual fund that declined or something like that, and said, I don't like mutual funds. They go down or whatever. It's like your rain example with golf. Your question is, well, would I go out if there was a 40% chance of rain? Of course you'd go out. But if you went out and it rained, it doesn't mean you're never going to go out golfing again because it rains when you go golfing. you got to draw the right conclusions and <laughs> use the, the data. I like your example. I've heard that many times from people that say, oh, I don't like mutual funds. That's such a bold, broad statement because that's assuming that all mutual funds are created equal 
which is just not true. There's so many variations of how funds are offered from a fee basis, from just a structure basis. Like, what are they invested? Are they funds of funds? Are they equity funds? Are they bond funds? Are they whatever? But definitely, I hear that all the time too. So if we can all agree on some fundamental principles, maybe that will help. We can all agree on the basics of markets. And that is that stocks outperform bonds in the long term. You mentioned that at the beginning of the episode. That perhaps small company stocks have higher expected returns than large company stocks in the long term. That markets move in cycles and are not constant. Agreed. Right? And that typically when the stock market is having a correction, the bond market is up, except during short-term periods of hypervolatility like we're experiencing kind of right now. But even then, the bonds in that market, I think this is where people get it wrong, Greg, even though the price of those bonds has traded down because we've got interest rate hikes, other things happening, inflation, et cetera, all of those bonds have maturities. So they have a defined life to them and they mature at par for the most part. Basically, we can agree that you should take your growth risk in stocks and your protection in bonds. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And lastly, we can say with certainty, certainty, Greg, that the 60 portfolio is not dead for all those reasons. I am certain of it until we read about it next year again with our annual revision of the annual death of the 60-40 portfolio. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's an excellent place to wrap it up. I think hopefully we've dealt with that issue and we can move on. Just again, to summarize, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? No, I don't believe so. No. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, well, then I guess we'll leave it there. Till next time. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.